1: Joining me today is Dr. Eric Reinhardt, a Harvard-trained physician and anthropologist. Eric joins me to discuss Dr. Paul Farmer, in my mind, the greatest physician of my generation. Dr. Farmer tragically died suddenly a year ago, this past month. Eric, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's my privilege.
1: Uh, Dr. Reinhardt's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background for listeners unfamiliar with Dr. Paul Farmer, also a Harvard-trained physician and medical anthropologist, his work was moreover known for decades of healthcare delivery effort in Haiti, more formally forwarded by Partners in Health, an organization he co-founded in 1987 that today provides healthcare at over 15 sites located throughout the country. Over the years, Dr. Farmer and Partners in Health have expanded their healthcare work around the world to, for example, Rwanda, Malawi, Sierra Leone, and Lesotho in Africa, Mexico, and Peru in South America, and the Navajo Nation in the U.S. Dr. Farmer and his colleagues were also widely known for their international efforts to address multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, MDRTP, for which they received a $50 million uh, award in support of their work by the Gates Foundation. Dr. Farmer was largely influenced by liberation theology, sometimes termed liberation of the oppressed. For example, by Gustavo Gutierrez's originally published 1971 work, A Theology of Liberation. The influence of liberation theology clearly was evident in uh, Dr. Farmer's 03 volume, Pathologies of Power, Health, Human Rights, and the New War on the Poor, not too surprisingly with an introduction by Amartya Sen. Among other achievements, Dr. Farmer served as a university professor and department chair at Harvard, served in United Nations positions on numerous boards, and as editor in chief of health and human rights, he authored over 100 articles and a dozen books. His most recent was the, uh, the 2020, excuse me, volume, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola, and the Ravages of History. Among numerous awards, Dr. Farmer received a MacArthur Fellowship, was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine, and was a recipient of numerous honorary doctorate degrees and prizes. Surprisingly not, at least to me, a Nobel Peace Prize. With me again to discuss the work of Dr. Paul Farmer, a former student, Dr. Eric Reinhardt. Finally, I'll note, listeners may recall I interviewed Eric on June 24, 2021, regarding mass incarceration, public health, and structural racism during the COVID era. So that's a bit lengthy. Eric, I did try to keep it short, and of course, it just scratches his accomplishments. But let's begin. Um, first, since I noted a th- uh, former student, can you tell me how you knew Dr. Farmer?
0: Yeah, I met Paul uh, in the second half of the first decade of the 2000s and I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I took a, a course that he started teaching around that time with Jim Kim and Arthur Kleinman. Um, Case studies in global health. The title has evolved over time. I actually forget the original title now. Um, and they drew largely on P.I.H. Partners in Health's different interventions uh, over the prior two decades to elaborate a, a new concept, as they understood it, of what global public health might be. Um, that was when I first met Paul, and then I subsequently ended up going to medical school, at the University of Chicago. And when I went to do my PhD in anthropology, I, I returned to Harvard and worked again with Paul and Arthur and others who were in this uh, social medicine circle that they were part of at Harvard. And I continued to have a relationship with Paul throughout that time. And we did reading courses together. And I taught in that course that I had taken as an undergraduate years before. I ended up teaching that course with him and several other people for, for uh, I don't know, I think seven continuous years. Um, so over that time, I had a, and I taught some other courses with Paul as well. So we had um what for me was a very special relationship. I think Paul, the unique thing about Paul is that he had special relationships with pretty much everyone he ever encountered. The attention he gave to every individual he met was, was remarkable. I've never met somebody quite like this. So I hesitate in anything we'll talk about over the last next half hour to speak for Paul or for anybody else who knew Paul. I can speak only from, you know, the position of my particular relationship to him, which was in the scheme of things, not special in the sense that there were thousands of people with substantive relationships and there were in many ways perhaps more substantive than my own. But for me, it was a quite formative relationship.
1: Okay, uh, thank you. You mentioned Jim Kim, and I, I should note I didn't in the intro, not enough time. He was Paul's basically lifetime uh, professional partner, uh, similarly educated. Uh, Jim went on to run th- the world bank. I think if I'm correct, he is he president currently at Dartmouth or at least he was.
0: No, he was before he took his position at the world bank. Oh, I have it backwards it for about a decade. Yeah.
1: Okay. But anyway, they were, they were close collaborators. Um, so that's certainly I should have, uh, it's worth noting. So I'm just going to ask you some, um, I appreciate noting these, your comments, obviously I I'm, I'm interested maybe in, a, in this opening question beyond how you, how you knew him, but You know, he was such an interesting uh, person, um, and he did so much. It's hard to get your head around all of it. But how do you think about his work or understand or define it?
0: Uh, That's such an enormous question. There's so many different aspects of it.
1: Um, Well, I'll ask uh, you another question. You can, yeah, but a similar question, or would have been my follow up. And I, I mentioned uh, Liberation Theology. In fact, I have to say, I've waited 10 years to be able to note that uh, field of study and uh, some of the writings beyond uh, Gutierrez, uh, Leonardo Boff, and others. Uh, for listeners interested, Orbis Books is a good place to start. Uh, sadly, in D.C., those two dots never get connected, uh, health, public health, and, and liberation theology. Um, so by way of noting that, another way or similar question I ask is, what, what motivated him? I mean if you read his books obviously um and his personal history of of spending time um in the Caribbean and Latin America it was kind of hard to miss in the 90s uh yeah. you know the 93 revolution in et cetera. but the again the other way to look at this is his motivations
0: yeah Again, I wouldn't want to speak for Paul, and I think if you ask this question to different people, you'll get a lot of different responses. You can ask it to Bill Gates, to whom I've never directly spoken, uh, but I'm quite certain you'd get a very different sure. answer. And I don't know that that answer would be any less correct than my own. But from my perception of Paul, um, you know, he he was very much influenced by, by world systems theory, uh, <laughs> And a kind of Marxian political analysis, and this is formative to liberation theology. Right. Um, this is not something that a lot of his funders are particularly sympathetic to, so Paul wasn't foregrounding this at every opportunity, but I think this was absolutely formative for Paul, Emmanuel Wallerstein and others who were writing in this kind of mode. And that Paul was was consuming quite voraciously in the, in the 1980s as he was coming into being as an intellectual, as an actor in the world. So I think, you know, Paul is most famous within medical anthropology, within a lot of the uh, global health literature, for his emphasis on structural violence. And -hmm. for thinking about how do we produce systems-oriented responses to the fact of structural violence that address root causes, that don't simply perseverate at medical treatment reactions to these things, but, but really confront them head on. I think that's what motivated Paul, trying to think about how do you produce from a situated position as a physician, a kind of health systems revolution that might begin in a very particular place with um, a close attunement to what Arthur Kleinman would call the local moral world of a particular environment and its political economic determinants. How do you grow from that situated site into something like a broader vision of transformative change that would draw connections between an individual case a, a particular patient that came to paul and the global economic systems that are shaping that reality and that sounds kind of absurd that you could draw such a uh, uh, connection across such grand scales but i think this is what paul sent out to do and along the way he made various compromises and in an attempt to achieve pragmatic effects. But I think this always remained more or less his his goal. Now, whether he succeeded in this somewhat impossible mission is, is a separate question, but I think this was what fundamentally drove him.
1: Right. Thank you again. I, In my notes, in recollecting, having read several of his books, I noted some phrases expressed, or he expressed his concern as the nature and distribution of extreme suffering he did this uh, this other perspective as from the point of view of, of a physician, and he wrote, it seems obvious that tackling poverty and inequality is central to any good faith effort to protect the rights of the poor and their health, uh, taking a broad biosocial approach. This, of course, begs, uh, amongst other influences, uh, Virchow, Rudolf Verkau's work, social mm-hmm. medicine. So I, I personally, my view, I, I absolutely agree with, with your comments about Trying to understand um, his work, let let me ask you, it, in your understanding, or maybe you've had this conversation with Paul. What what did he think of his own work, um, and and related? What would he what would he say uh, he worked most um, ardently to try to accomplish?
0: Mm. You know, Paul. Paul's biggest investment in every single day was the relationships he had built, and those relationships are what enabled every aspect of his work as it met people on the ground, people in clinics, people in hospitals, um, community health workers in rural villages. It seemed to me that Paul was preoccupied with with those relationships. He, when asked to reflect in grand terms, um. And he was often asked to do so by academics, by other anthropologists, and to do so in a critical vein, uh, to suggest that perhaps his project wasn't as transformative as he thought, etc. Paul, at least in the, the decade and a half that I spent with him, would would sometimes become defensive, I think, because he was so invested in these everyday relationships that he knew were making a difference, that were keeping people alive who would otherwise not be alive, that were feeding people who would not otherwise be fed, who were providing income to people who would otherwise be without it, that I didn't see him that often really want to reflect a grand scale, which to him I think often felt like abstraction and a kind of indulgence from from a site of comfort in a university here or there. I think he was just every single day trying to do the best he could with the resources that he had available to him because he knew the material consequences of that work. Um, This, I think, was perhaps different than Paul was when I didn't yet know him, but based on his writing in the early 90s, for example, or the late 80s, where he was much more immersed in the academy. He Mm -hmm. was thinking about how do you apply the academy to these sites? How do you make use of it? I think he figured out how to do that in his own way, in a way that felt meaningful and satisfying to him to some degree. Um, So I didn't see Paul give grand uh, narrative justifications or defenses or elaborations of his work that often. I saw him mostly attend to that everyday work of trying to cultivate these networks of relationships that provided care to people who who needed it.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, he was, amongst numerous other things, a a frontline healthcare provider. I mean, that's... That's un- yeah, un- he was a very
0: good clinician too. Uh, this is a, I mean, I've heard. I mean, I'm not an infectious disease doctor, heart. it's hard for me to evaluate him as such. But if you spend any time with Paul, you could see that his bedside manner, that was testified to by many physicians who worked with him in various contexts around the world, that that had a, uh, carried over to his everyday interactions with people that he met after talks. For example, you would see Paul give a talk. He's awarded some prize here or there, and he would stay for literally hours after the talk, greeting every single person who stood in line and not just introducing himself and you know saying hi or whatever, and then you know pushing them off so he could see the next person, talking to them for basically as long as they wanted. Um, I, I remember Paul, I was at the University of Chicago at the time, and medical school, and Paul came to give a talk there. And I waited, I think, to like 1 a.m. just to be able to say hi to him. I had nothing to say to him. I was just going to try and say Hi. But he was seeing every single person in this long line of people waiting to see him his his uh um the value that he placed on people in these interactions was phenomenal, and I think it you know that reflects also the kind of investment he had in the very intimate character of clinical care
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me go to an earlier comment you made about uh his influences in wallerstein and others uh you you noted some people. Uh, his views were not, say, readily accepted and or appreciated by others. Um, so that begs the question, that's to suggest there were instances when his work was not well received and supported. And um, can you generally describe those instances where there there was... Now, he, of course, said that uh, for basically ever, nobody really thought that he could make any difference in Haiti because of their... Ec- Of course, I mean, this is a country a little smaller than Maryland with twice the population of Maryland and with, well, basically few, if any, uh, resources, natural resources. Um, uh, He thought that that population could get adequate health care. Of course, that was not necessarily what the academy thought. So could you explain that battle?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, a good example is when Paul and his colleagues were working in Peru on MDR-TB in mm-hmm. the slums around Lima, and they had a strategy for treating multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, and the World Health Organization was not in line with this plan. They basically thought it was too cost-ineffective, too difficult to be able to do this, and the focus was just on containment. This is in the 90s, and Paul and his colleagues pushed really, really hard against this um, to insist that not only was this possible to effectively treat MDR-TB, but it was an absolute public health necessity. There's no possibility of containment of, of an epidemic of this kind. You have to treat. And this attempted dissolution of the this arbitrary distinction between treatment and prevention was something that was very important for them in that context and became very important at, in the same period for HIV around the world. Uh, that you know, treatment is prevention, and that this became evident at least to an international audience by the by the mid 2000s. But the 90s was not dogma by any means at that point, and that was a point where where Paul's insistence that the poor deserve uh, poor people, poor people who are deprived of resources, deserve best quality care regardless of their income or capacity to pay for it. You know, met a lot of resistance. It wasn't popular at that time. And then eventually, through demonstrating remarkable success in public health terms, in quantitative terms, Paul was able to, you know, with his colleagues, win over the World Health Organization and produce the new paradigm. those came out as DOTS Plus. Um, and this became standard of care around the world. And then they applied it again in Siberia around the post-Soviet uh, MDR-TB epidemic that spread through Russian prisons, for example. Mm-hmm. So Paul, Paul would embrace conflict when he had to. Paul was not a conflict-oriented type of person. Um, his interpersonal relationships, this is, I mean, he was almost conflict-averse to a fault. What he saw in pretty much everyone that he worked with was their potential. And he really, really believed in their potential to do extraordinary things to advance his goal of health equity in the world and repairing the harm that has has been done in our world. Um, and he brought people along with that, people that you would not necessarily expect to be persuadable by Paul's positions. And he didn't do that by giving them infections and inequalities and pathologies of power, but his books, but by investing in his relationships with people. And I think he was extraordinarily sincere in doing that. Um, there's this you know, passage from the New Testament. I, I'm not a particularly theologically driven person, but Paul was in many ways. And St. Paul writes at one point about being all things to all people, so that he might win a few, mm-hmm. um, and Paul really was this. I think he was he was all things to all people, but in the most sincere way that I have that I've seen, and he with this had extraordinary
1: effects. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you again. I, I I know him through his books, and I mentioned his last one, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds. And my read of his of the literature is that while he may not have been. Um, Say confrontational, interpersonally. He he was he was very straightforward in his writings. I mean, he's, yeah, he made his arguments very clearly without apology. He told you right. exactly what he was thinking, and in fact, that book is basically um, uh, his interpretation of Ebola and other public health problems in these countries um, is the result of you know colonial rule, and it's 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 the legacy left of yeah. colonialism. Uh, I mean, it, it,
0: it, Paul was like this in his teaching as well, uh, in the text that he assigned, and how he would speak about uh, powerful interests that were entrenched within various global public health systems. He was not particularly a fan, for example, of how the Gates Foundation proceeded with uh, you know delete, disease elimination top-down paradigms. Mm-hmm. For example, at the same time, he counted Bill Gates as one of his you know genuine friends and supporters. Um, so I, I mean, I think there's a certain way in which Paul's rather it's, the, the, which the stark contrast between paul's writing and his interpersonal relationships were a way that he balanced his own necessity for a kind of intellectual honesty and rigor and an operationalized prog- pragmatic solidarity as he called it didn't have to have total ideological overlap with somebody or even necessarily much mm-hmm. ideological overlap at all to think about what you could pragmatically do together to achieve the ends that paul was after and this also entailed, of course, compromise. And Paul was criticized by many people for this. Like, how is it that you can collaborate with somebody like Bill Gates or Bill Clinton, who he you know, very intensely criticized in the 90s for uh, his involvement in Haiti, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul was able to do that. And I don't think that he was dishonest or disingenuous in doing so. And to me, that's still a question. I, I struggle. I struggle with that. I'm not able to reproduce the same kinds of pragmatic solidarities that Paul is. Uh, and I think as a consequence, I'm not nearly effective as I might otherwise be. And lots of other people, I think, have the same kind of experience. So, you know, there are lots of criticisms to be to be mounted around this, but there's a lot of questions that I have as well as to how you can... Um, Be motivated by pragmatic effect. And I think an ethics that is not accountable to its effects is not a particularly ethical system in my mind. And I think Paul always had that in mind, accountability to material effects for the most, most dispossessed people right now, not accountability to whatever abstract theoretical questions might be raised by this or that collaboration. And, you know, that's a, it's a tenuous line to walk because you do get soiled in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was something Paul Thought was his ethical obligation to the world, and he lived according to that.
1: Well, I appreciate you noting the Gates, and that was my intent of noting Gates because you know there's a lot of criticism uh, Bill Gates relative to, and I'll just put it bluntly, patent hoarding uh, Mm. and other sort of other international public health issues, uh, related issues. Um, My sense of Paul, again from a distance, was, and I I always thought in this phrase, he was in the world, uh, but. At times, appropriately, he was not of the world, right? So he could play, he could do both. And I think that in some really uh, uh, explains why he was as successful and as accomplished as he was. He could do both.
0: He Uh, was strategic in the moments in which he was, as you're saying, (laughs) not not of the world.
1: Right, exactly. exactly. He certainly had private criticisms
0: of things that the Gates Foundation might do or the UN might do, for example, in Haiti after the cholera epidemic that it spawned. But he made choices not to engage certain moments with a thought as to what the consequence might be if he were to indulge his own conscience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in relationship to the material consequences that would come for the people who were served by the programs that his, uh, his refusal to engage supported. So
1: right, the greater good. Right, yes. And again, this this inherently begs your speculation, but you have an informed, studied view. So, what sort of the I hate I don't particularly care for the word, but this is the legacy question. Um, how would you define it, or or will, or how do you think his work continues, or you know, the influence his work will have going forward you know I'm trying to get at that that sort of issue and and I asked that in part and, and I, I I believe I said this to you last year when we had a, some back and forth when he died soon after he died I was actually struck by um, and this gets to your point about uh, people had uh, different views of what he's trying to do um, I was struck by although it, his his passing received a fair amount of uh, attention I, I thought it was far far less than what what he accomplished and what he deserved. Um, so again, back to what's what's your sense of of his legacy?
0: Yeah, the, the question of legacy with Paul is um, a complicated question. You know, in many ways, his death was was extraordinarily noted around the world. You had mm-hmm. Bill Gates writing this or that publication, and pretty much every notable person in global public health wrote some kind of eulogy, more or less, and with respect to Paul. Um, And a lot of those celebrated Paul as this singular figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Bill Gates specifically said, you know, there's never going to be another Paul Farmer. Global public health is, you know, fundamentally altered by his passing.
1: That's my concern, actually. That is my that is my concern. And
0: this was actually very frustrating for me and a lot of people who worked with Paul to see Uh, On the one hand, we want to see Paul remembered and celebrated for the things that he did. We also might want to see critical engagement with some of the gaps that Paul himself identified Mm -hmm. and the frustrations that Paul himself had with PIH, his own work, and the inadequacy of it with respect to the scale of the problem that we face. Uh, which is not to say that Paul was not extraordinarily proud of PIH and the work that he did, but he he didn't have some illusion that somehow we had now solved all of the problems right. of global public health. Um, and hagiography, hey, which is a lot of what we saw after his death, I yeah. don't think was particularly useful for advancing the kind of fundamental changes we need in global public health. Instead, it it often seemed to reinforce a lot of this great man historiography right and this was particularly frustrating to me because the most important thing that i gathered from my years with paul was this concept and practice of accompaniment that it's only through bottom-up systems predicated on the lived experience of people who are most excluded by existing health care and public health systems that we can achieve the kinds of system transformations that we need, that we can also keep in view the political economic inequalities and structures that are enforcing uh, unnecessary death around the world. And then that that's not going to be led by Bill Gates. It's mm-hmm. not going to be led by Ashish Jha.
1: Right.
0: It's going to be led by the accompaniment-based community health workers that Paul and his colleagues invested their lives in, in Haiti, and Rwanda, Liberia, around the world. And in some way, had Paul achieved his vision more fully, his passing might not have been marked at all because his significance would have been eclipsed by all of these people that he had supported and trained over time. And he would not have been hailed as some singular figure that's now lost and that we don't know what global public health is going to look like without, Mm -hmm. but rather the beginning of something that has blossomed to be something much more than Paul himself. Right. And my concern is that the the celebration of Paul as this singular world historical figure um, does ideological harm, actually, that it undermines the vision that Paul was actually most adamantly trying to evangelize. And I mean, I, I, I'm, I have a lot of personal attachment to Paul. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm without Criticisms of of some of the ways in which he worked, but I think these are. I think we should all maintain kind of productive criticisms of the heretofore, you know, the inadequacies that have reigned heretofore in our attempts to try to to extend these efforts. So I don't think this is a kind of uh, antagonism towards Paul. It's a it's a productive extension of what Paul tried trying to do. Uh, so I wanted to see him celebrated, but but this was very frustrating to me, especially that kind of Bill Gates narrative of the singular figure, the singular hero that's lost. Global health, public health does not need heroes. It needs accompanied tours. Um, and I think that this is fundamentally how we have to perceive. So I wasn't really concerned that Paul didn't get enough attention. I was kind of concerned that he got too much and that the nature of the attention was um, antagonistic to the very vision Paul gave us.
1: I I I'd so appreciate hearing that. Um, you know, it's it's not the quantity of the attention; it's it's the, the quality and and the the right kind of interpretation. That instead, of, and I appreciate your word hagiography, that he was some some sort of unicorn like figure. Um, is I think Ed, per your point, I, I I thought it was harmful to suggest that, and it, it, and it's it's certainly not in line with what he was trying to do, whether he accomplished it or not. I note the attention because now I realize. uh, I mean, Paul traveled extensively. Most of his time wasn't in this country, Um, but I, you know, the Department, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I checked when he passed away. I checked for thirty days out. Nobody said anything. Um, and and I, I now, you know, I guess there's reasons. You know, you could say that. Well, if they start noting. You know they have to do this, and then it becomes sort of a prerequisite. Um, but I, I, I will say that I found it shocking that the Secretary of HHS could not put out, um, you know, at least for the purpose of his family, to say something um, about his life's work. So, but I, I think you're right, and, and you do—you yourself have written pieces on accompaniment and the importance thereof in public health. So I, that I, I, that really resonates. Obviously, because this has been your work as well, or similar, so th- only
0: insofar as it's been an extension of what of what Paul gave me while he was living and and now that he's passed and I think that this this issue is a really important issue it It gets to fundamental ideological foundations of, uh, of neoliberal global public health mm-hmm. versus bottom up um you know, transformation of of public health as we understand it today. And, you know, what we've seen with PIH, for example, in the the wake of Paul's death is a tricky situation because they relied upon Paul as their biggest fundraiser. He personally brought in the vast majority of funds that sustain PIH's work and the accompaniment-based community health worker systems that they're, you know, designed to support Mm -hmm. around the world. And so in the wake of of his death, they were concerned about how can we get enough money to support these programs. And that's something that Paul himself would have been extraordinarily concerned about and would have wanted to see himself instrumentalized in any way possible to support these programs in order to enable the material ends that they produce. But the best way to market oneself, to market an organization like PIH, is through the heroic figure of Paul Farmer. So I'm sympathetic to why, for, for example, even from within PIH, there was a certain kind of indulgence of that narrative of Paul. Also, mm-hmm. people loved Paul mm-hmm. for very good reason. People still love Paul. I think for many people, they, they are still wrecked in some sense by his death, which was completely unexpected to right. us, to me for sure. Um, so, you know, we, we want to celebrate somebody that we love. On the other hand, how do we balance that kind of marketing incentive Which is not, you know, not capitalist marketing. incentive. I mean, the incentive comes from capitalist systems in some sense, but we're using it to try to support these, what in theory should be somewhat, uh, you know, certainly not capitalist systems of public health support. Um, But there's a tension that arises then because we give ideological reinforcement to frameworks that we're trying to undermine in the same moment that we're trying to advance them. You know, so it's a very difficult issue. How do we get away from heroic narratives and it you know paul happened to be a white guy uh, mm-hmm. who were producing these narratives and that makes it a little more visible but this also happens um with all sorts of other figures as well how who have different identity characteristics and then that becomes part of a kind of vision of diversity and inclusion within the field but which is important but it can also be co-opted to reproduce these very individualistic frameworks that are one of our biggest obstacles to producing the kinds of systems transformations that we need.
1: Right. I appreciate your using, and and Paul used this word frequently, neoliberalism, uh, sometimes phrased the terrorism of money, um, to give you an idea. In fact, I think he may have used that phrase at one point it comes to mind. Um, But you're right. I mean, at one point, um, from one end or from one perspective, Paul was pretty revolutionary and um, having that understood, accepted, and funded is a, is a heavy lift uh, if you're going to insist on what the actual meaning of what he was trying to do, instead of comp- per your point about compromising to fit some other paradigm uh, that funders have. You know, the great white man or great white hope, or however you want to phrase that. Um, yeah. So you're right; it's 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 a problem, to say the least. Um, we're at about our time. I appreciate this. Um, let, let, me just ask, you know, if there's something I didn't ask, or if there's, or if there's a comment you didn't have time to, uh, make, or I didn't give yeah. you an opportunity to afford to make the comment. Uh what would be, what would be for, for, and I, let's frame it as this way. You're, you're a, you're an educator as well. What, what would you say if you were before a class of students and say one of his works was assigned to read and they're looking for you to make a comment about, um, what's best for them to keep in mind going forward relative to what uh, Paul is trying to accomplish? Hmm.
0: I don't know if I would say this to students. Okay. (laughs) I would say this to his funders, uh, to the people who are now trying to realize his vision, who are brought in largely many of them through this kind of heroic narrative of mm-hmm. Paul Farmer, the great humanitarian, to read his work and to start with his early work, um, AIDS and accusation, uses of Haiti, and then move on from there. I mean, I think the, his Ebola book, you can see many in many ways reflected in his earlier work. Mm-hmm. It's a form is in some sense like the combination of his first three books. Um And in fact, the manuscript that he submitted for the Ebola book was uh, enormous. It was like 800, 900 pages, I believe. And then the editor made him cut it down a bit, Uh, but it's still quite long Uh, because the narrative of Paul you get is not necessarily consistent with what he tried to espouse and what he did espouse. And he has this this essay that he disavowed to some degree. It's called The Birth of the Clinic with a K Mm -hmm. that was about uh, Haitian psychiatry. And it was in a collected volume on ethnopsychiatry. I think he had his arm twisted to write it in the early 90s. I think it was published in 92. Uh, I taught a course with him in which I assigned this, and he was kind of annoyed with me because he thought this was a work of juvenilia. He had kind of turned away from some of the ideas he espoused in it, but I think it actually remained consistent with what Paul represented until his death, which is this uh, an emphasis on epistemic humility. What we often lose in these hero narratives and The visions of the great humanitarian, et cetera, are the grounded forms of epistemic humility that accompaniment compels and produces. And in this this short essay, The Birth of the Clinic, he emphasizes this idea of Haiti as an island of radical anthropology, where these Haitian caregivers who have been trained in the center in Paris at Columbia University in New York and then come back and they're applying psychiatric ideas in this context, they very quickly come to recognize the quasi-colonial imperial character of these ideas. And they don't fit, actually, with the Haitian context in which they're trying to apply them. And that the prescribed forms of care don't function well. And there's an invention that occurs. And there's a kind of organic intellectual that emerges. And not just an organic intellectual in the sense of, of which Gramsci wrote, but an organic caregiver, uh, an accompanitor. And I think from from this early essay, if you read this through all of his work, with an emphasis on this epistemic humility that he begins with, and then thinking about how it then translates to thinking about political economic structures how it think how you think about the application of accompaniment in everyday life i think this is an important antidote of sorts to the kind of heroic narrative of the great humanitarian that we often receive now with respect to paul's life and his work and i would i would emphasize um, that i suppose
1: well that, that that is very helpful that is very helpful i appreciate that so that, with that, Eric, uh, we're, we're sadly at about our time. So I appreciate this overview of, of Paul Farmer and his work. Sorry to know what to say other than thank you for it. Uh, I hope we'll be talking uh, down the road again about your work, uh, your related work, um, which, of course, is, is worth for further discussion. So with that, I'll leave it and say thank you again, Eric. Thank you, David.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.